time to stop carbon up and start cutting. This week, fringe is ongoing and oh god, I haven't slept since last Friday. Maybe I should just crash in an Airbnb before they require licenses and all shut down. We'll also talk about City Council's response to the climate emergency and banning conversion therapy. Hi, I'm Troy. I'm Matt. And we're Speaking Speaking Municipally. Welcome back to Speaking Municipally, episode 50, where we're once again late because I'm in the throes of the Edmonton Fringe, and while I'm not going to not see Fringe shows, um, I have a choice. I'm working full-time, I'm doing Fringe shows, and I'm not sleeping, so podcast got pushed. You get it on Saturday. Um, but we've got a lot to talk about today, all of which comes after the rapid-fire segment. The Fort Saskatchewan-based lollipop company Sumptuous Lollies will be providing lollipops to the Emmy Awards this year. The mother-daughter company has sent lollies all around the world and to many different events, including the Grammy Awards last year. New lollipop companies, especially gourmet ones, are not a hugely frequent occurrence, so it's difficult to tell if this means that Sumptuous Lollies has made it. Asked what complete success looks like for a lolly company, the owners responded, really the goal is to replace avocado toast with lollies as the main reason millennials can't own homes. Edmonton will continue to use the calcium chloride solution as snow management tool this year, according to a city plan released this week. This comes after the city was barraged with a slew of information, misinformation, anger, and corporate lobbying about the product. Personally, I don't see the need for the product. The roads were bare pavement last week and we weren't using calcium chloride at all. Wait, what? That was summer? Are you sure? Oof. Bird's launch weekend with 150 e-scooters saw over 2,000 rides, no injuries, and 10 thefts. One user decided to take a scooter, scrape off Bird's logo, and then add his own logo because... Hey, it seems everyone is launching a scooter company in Edmonton, so why shouldn't he? Taproot Edmonton reached out to the enterprising individual, a tech innovator if we do say so ourselves, asking what other business ventures he's invested in. He replied that he has a lot of capital tied up in gasoline bought pre-carbon tax and stored in tanks, but he was jockeyed out of the market by conservative politicians, so he had to write off that stellar business idea. Speaking Municipally is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB, and we want to talk to you about the ECF, which you've heard about before, and you should know by now that the foundation acts as a bridge between donors and charities to create strong, vibrant communities for generations to come. You can start an endowment fund yourself or with a group, and once it reaches 10 grand, it can start distributing funds. Uh, Vital Signs is an annual checkup conducted by the Edmonton Community Foundation in partnership with the Edmonton Social Planning Council to measure how the community is doing. And this year, the focus is on five topics, women, sexual orientation, gender identity in Edmonton, visible minority women, and senior women. You can learn more at ecfoundation.org. So, um, I think we got to start off the top with some personal news. Yeah. Um, June 13th, I believe it was, so several months ago at this point, I did a Pecha Kucha night talk saying, don't run for public office. And a lot of listeners reached out and said, hey, Troy, when can we see this? I said, don't worry. The video will be released shortly after the presentation. A shortly has long since passed, but I got an email yesterday morning about my PKN talk. And it's live? We can go watch it? No, they will not be publishing the PKN talk. PKN is a global organization. It's like a trademarked thing. Pecha Kucha Nights. It's like it's owned, so you have to use it with license. Right. So in reaching out to PKN Global, PKN Global said they could not allow this talk to be published 
The PKN email, which was forwarded to me, uh, said, due to lack of permissions given for the usage of certain images containing members of your community and other content, we've kindly asked that you, the Pechacucha Night organizers, refrain from publishing this presentation on Pechacucha.com and your YouTube channel. Which confused me a little bit because how do they know I don't have permission? Well, and even if they could take a guess because you had, say, the mayor's head on some other thing or uh-huh. a counselor Knack's head on some, isn't that satire? Isn't that allowed under fair use? Yeah, it's de- definitely fair use. And I do actually have, I reached out to um, the city of Edmonton for permission for those specific images when I was making yegvotes.info. On. Right. So like I've got, I've got emails saying authorization. The PKN Edmonton were a little more explicit in their reason why they couldn't publish it. And it says, as an organizer of PKNs in Edmonton, we strive to have a safe and inclusive place to share ideas, which is all good so far. We cannot publish presentations that personally attack individuals in our community. Who did you attack? So on balance, I think that's a fair statement, um, (laughs) just like as a policy. And... I did dedicate 45 seconds of my talk to making eye contact with Andrew Knack and just ripping him a new one. Yeah. Um, he did heckle back. He did. So there's and that. And you guys chatted after I was there. It yeah. Seemed, it seemed cordial he enough. He knew it was coming. But I think, one, Knack is a public figure. And two, if the talk is about don't waste 10 years of your life running for city council and you lambast someone for wasting 10 years of their life running for I don't think that's offside. So long story short, I don't know if anyone will ever see this talk ever again. I've asked for a personal copy that I've... That you could post on YouTube. Well, I've said that will remain unpublished, hopefully so that they will give it to me. So I guess I'll just host some screening parties at my house to watch the video. Um, Stay tuned for that. I'll come and watch it with a cell phone cam and post that. I'm sure at some point the PKN people, they saw my name on the list of things to do and they're like, oh... God, we have to talk to Troy again. <laughs> He's been such a headache this whole process. Speaking of headaches, though, uh, there's been some headaches with FOIPs in the city, and Taproot talked about that this week. Yeah, we're not going to get into the particular issue this week, but I was paying attention to council on Monday, executive committee, the first meeting back, and they were talking about a report on the future of Tech Edmonton. They had struck this task force to come up with a list of recommendations for what that organization should do. It's one of these things that came out of budget. So they held the money in abeyance until they got this report. And during the discussion, um, the CEO of EEDC, Derek Hudson, and uh, I believe it was Councillor Ben Henderson and, and maybe Michael Walters at the same time, were talking about, you know, we need to get some clarity on the roles in this innovation community. Who's going to do what? And they talked about using the shareholder meeting. So the city of Edmonton, of course, is the shareholder of EEDC. They have this private meeting between their board and council that is not open to the public. And I tweeted, whoa, whoa, whoa. This is probably not a good idea. This is an important conversation. It should happen in public. I know many other people reached out to councillors as well. 24 hours later, Councillor Knack and, and Mayor Iveson agreed and said, no, we're going to do this in public. And they gave notice of motion on Wednesday. So that was a small victory for transparency and having these discussions in public. And so I wrote about that on the Taproot blog and and highlighted some of the work that Janice Johnston at CBC and Elise Stolte at The Journal, who is about to leave for a year, so she won't get to continue this, uh, have done recently. And, And Elise wrote a really good article about the work she's been doing on FOIP requests for Trans Ed and the Valley Line LRT construction. So check that out if you haven't already. And that's a pretty important topic because 
in terms of transparency, we have city policy C586. No, 581 is the open city policy. And that's great that we have this open by default strategy. But unless someone's holding people's feet to the fire, it just doesn't get done. Yeah, this is what I said in the blog post. Like, it's easy to articulate what is important to you. And it's much harder to take an organization of 14,000 people and have them live it every day. And so it takes some persistence and some public pressure, I think in order for us to do that. And so it's a small thing, but you know, every time that there's an opportunity, we should be pushing for information to be open. And for the longest time and continuing, we rely on journalists to put that pressure on, but newsrooms are shrinking, budgets are shrinking, and Elise is leaving for a year. She was the one who fought for memos being open, right. for Valley Line information, all sorts of things. So if we lose our champion there, do we have another one picking up the mantle or do we lose this thread? That's pretty important questions that we have to grapple with in the next couple of weeks. Speaking municipally, he's going to have to pick up the slack. Apparently. Can I get a raise, Mac? <laughs> Talking about Fringe, because Fringe has had a year. It wouldn't be Fringe without some debacles happening. Yeah, so there was additional Fringe drama. Drama might be a light way to call it. At the Late Night Cabaret uh, this week on Nudie Wednesday, which you can already see where this is going interesting um an audience member was pulled up on stage uh for the performer the scottish drag queen and it's iffy what happened there uh, we've had conflicting statements from a witness and then french theater and some are saying it's being oversold some are saying it's being undersold i wasn't there i can't know what happened but roughly everyone agrees that he was pulled up onto stage in about 45 seconds, his shirt was unbuttoned and like his glasses were taken off and he super wasn't comfortable with it. And he's like, nah, I'm, I'm out. I'm walked off the stage. Right. The performer apologizes like, oh, geez, I screwed up. Also walked off the stage. They called an early intermission and then the producers offered drink tickets to the patrons to say, hey, sorry. And the patrons decided to call the police. The police came, took statements and decided not to press charges on anyone and then the fringe responded with their safer spaces policies right so there's a lot to unpack there i don't know that we have a ton to say that hasn't already been said other than that this is good i think that it's being brought into the public i have to assume something like this has happened before and just culturally it was sloughed off in the past or people couldn't live tweet it or something along those lines yeah and like the nature of nudie Wednesday is that like you can't take pictures in the venue because right. privacy and yeah. people want to be comfortable. Um, a little bit of irony there. But so there was there was a tweet storm. The fringe responded. Um, There's criticism with the fringe response about downplaying it or not removing the performer from his own plays. He was just removed from late night cabaret. Fringe has been struggling this year and I've been to late night cabaret before and they do open it with a pretty extensive and exhaustive safer spaces declaration about consent and about making sure everyone's comfortable. So probably not great that this happened. Everyone can acknowledge that the performer is at fault. He should have been finding consent. He should have been making sure his audience members are comfortable, maybe not inviting people onto stage there. There's a whole slew of things that the performer could have done that he didn't do. Especially if they open the show with a statement like that. Yeah. Um, That's shocking. I didn't know that. There's no victim blaming involved here. Like it's the performer screwed up and yeah. it's not okay. Where this gets murky is how the fringe is supposed to respond to this. Because one, there's been calls for like 
well, why didn't the producers step in and stop this? It all happened very fast. And also it's very hard to tell from the wings, like if someone is uncomfortable and like to step in, if you're not prepped to do that, sure, that can be tough. The other aspect of the fringe is just like, to what extent does this mean he can't be a performer at the fringe? This is where the structured dialogue and the safer spaces policy comes in. I think it's signaling a problem, not necessarily a problem, but an issue that some of these policies protecting safer spaces have, which is you can't have a policy that doesn't allow for investigation and figuring out what happened and responding to it. And that just takes time. The fringe is a whirlwind thing over 10 days. There is no way for them to not make a mistake here either way. They can either be too lackadaisical and not enforce the policy strongly or they can be overzealous and perhaps ruin like a fringe performer's career over something that maybe they shouldn't have it's straddling this line and we talked about this in a previous episode and we're not gonna solve it on taproot edmonton to what extent is innocent until proven guilty the modus operandi because it doesn't work everywhere we have a justice system that's supposedly based on that right but when it comes to just people's comfort level you can't you can't go innocent until proven guilty because comfort is a thing that like is guilt is immediate. This is something that fringe is going to have to grapple with. And I expect they're going to have to have a much stronger policy next year. Otherwise, they're going to get lambasted very hard. Well, we'll we'll, we'll move on here right away. But one quick question. Do you think this is a, another example of the fringe needing to figure out their role because with this and with the David Belkey issue, it kind of seems a little bit like, well, that's the art and we shouldn't be policing that. You know, we have a lottery system and, but then other people are like, no, like we're coming to the fringe. It's a family friendly festival. Like you need to have some say in what happens and who's allowed to do what and some sort of maybe selection process for like, you're going to protect us as the festival goers from attending your festival and not having something bad happen. And maybe they seem a little bit reluctant to take that role on. What do you think? Uh, no, um, I don't think that's relevant here. It's different with David Belke because that's a performance and they were uncomfortable with the artist performing. And that's you get in discussion about book burning and all yeah. that. That's the logical endpoint. That's the extreme here. Yeah. This is an audience member being invited on stage and not giving consent. That's just hard. No, that's the, it. the yep. fringe needs to take a role to protect audiences when they're in a theater and hard stop. Yeah, they absolutely need stronger protections there. Um, but we will move on because, oh, well, it's fringe and we'll probably talk about it next week. Who knows what's going to happen in the next There's still days. a couple of days. Yeah. Um, and we're going to talk about a climate emergency because Edmonton City Council acted sort of on that this week. There was an event at City Hall and there many was. people showed up to talk about the climate emergency and what Edmonton City Council should do. So what happened? One of the first things back after summer break was a report on the Community Energy Transition Strategy, which was approved in 2015. And it basically said that the strategy is insufficient in keeping global average temperature at a maximum 1.5 degrees Celsius increase. And this is what Edmonton committed to uh, back in its 2018 Edmonton de- declaration. And so the report you know, basically came up with this carbon budget to figure out how many emissions could we you know, release into the world and still meet this Uh, this number, this target, and it says between 2017 and 2050, when we were expecting to be carbon neutral, our budget would be 155 megatons of carbon. And the report said we would exceed that if we keep going as we are in just eight years. So nowhere close to 2050. And so this came to executive committee. And as you say, a lot of people were there to, uh, to talk about it and basically to urge council to try to do more on this issue. 
So this sounds a lot like our recycling program where we have this ambitious target that we're going to hit. We're absolutely going to hit. And oh, wow, Edmonton's going to be a world leader. And then a report comes out and says, oh, no. Oh, no, we're not even close. Right. I think the only difference is that this time it was administration coming a bit early to say, hey, we're not going to hit this target versus with waste. We were sold that we were on target until we weren't. (laughs) And then some public pressure led to some information that said, no, we're not even close there. One of the things that was pushed for at committee this week from the public was to declare a climate emergency. This is something that many other cities around the world have done. They've said, this is an emergency. We're going to declare it as such. Uh, And the mayor had some thoughts on that. He said, quote, I feel we have gone much further than that in recent years with the Edmonton Declaration, which has all of the urgency of a declaration of emergency. Symbolically, we've already recognized the urgency of it and have done a lot more than other cities who simply declared an emergency to take tangible action. If I'm reading between the lines, Iveson is saying there, there's no value in virtue signaling. We're going to come back to that. Yeah. But yes, that is the takeaway from that quote, I think. What did city council actually do here? Was there any resolution from this? Yeah. So they did make a motion to do something, um, as is typical for council. They asked for a report back. Cool. So Uh, no is the answer to my question, actually. (laughs) They asked for a revised community energy transition strategy by the end of the third quarter next year uh, that aligns the emissions targets and actions with our local carbon budget so that they can approve a new strategy. And they have a, a list of eight things that this new strategy is supposed to include. Um, you know, including implementation of a carbon accounting system, an interim report from the Energy Transition Committee, and a funding strategy that outlines, and this is interesting, the investment required by all levels of government to catalyze private investment necessary to achieve the local carbon budget. Yeah, and I struggle with this because... You said, yes, they're doing something. And I said, no, they're not doing something. Yeah. This re- is this a baby step? Well, I don't, I don't think this is a baby step at all. I think this is a baby step towards acknowledging that we can't do anything. And so we won't because we had a long series of speaking municipally episodes about the budget. And we saw city council fighting for 0% budget increases. We need to trim the fat. Climate is something that like everyone cares about but especially in Edmonton where we're not super hit I mean like climate warms and we lose winter that sounds like a win for a lot of Edmontonians I'm being callous of course and I acknowledge that the extreme weather has increased but from a public perspective I don't know that there's this huge push especially in Edmonton and this is going to cost a lot of money we don't have a provincial government with a carbon tax anymore which was funding all these green initiatives. So like you said, it's important that they say the funding required from all levels of government, but we've tried to force the provincial government to give affordable housing funding for decades. And we haven't seen a lot of success there, even with government changes. I most likely see this as we're going to get a report back. It's going to say, well, we can't hit the 1.5 degrees Celsius target, but maybe if we do like half of that, we're doing okay and we'll like explain it away because we're northern climate and we got to heat things so unless we're talking about taking demolishing everyone's houses and mandating social housing you can only live in new district energy builds with great insulation like we're just not going to solve this problem because it's a money we can't all live in blatchford it feels a little bit like when we first started talking about this as a city edmonton really wanted to take a leadership position we wanted to be 
you know, one of the places of the world that was, um, you know, out in front on this and potentially coming up with solutions that we could export to other places. And and now it feels very much like we're behind the eight ball and don't have any interest in being a leader. Uh, I did think about you quite a bit on Monday because uh, it was the people in the room whose voices were heard the loudest at council, which we've talked about before. And so maybe part of it is that this needs to come to council more than once a year. I think even with the push at city council, it's going to come to other orders of government. And we've got an election in a couple months for a federal government. Mm -hmm. And there is one party that's saying absolutely no carbon tax. There's another party saying we need a climate emergency. And there's a third party that has green in the name. Um, (laughs) And I think votes from the population are going to determine exactly whether we hit these targets as a nation or not, because it is not important to some parties. And I think this election is going to be a litmus test to see if it's important to the population. To the extent that it can be in a first-past-the-post system. To the extent that it can be. Um, And we won't talk about why this is an election happening on first-past-the-post, because wasn't 2015 supposed to be the last one happening on first-past-the-post? Maybe. I thought so. We'll move on to... We're going to take that pin out of the virtue signaling is valueless and pop that back on top of the stack. And we'll talk about conversion therapy, which came to Edmonton City Council. There was, I'd say, a request, but a request is a pretty light way to frame the demand for this practice to be banned in the city of Edmonton and committee recommended that they did it. So this came uh, back in response to something Councillor Paquette asked for, right? And administration's report basically said that, you know, sure, we could come up with a way to ban conversion therapy, but it would be largely symbolic. Then we got to committee and everybody got on their high horse talking about how horrible this is. So a, a few quotes, Iveson said, I think this is a fundamental right for Edmontonians and for Canadians to not be subjected to any form of psychological abuse. It's a violence. Councillor Walter said, it is my view that this practice is evil, full stop. Uh, Member Parliament Randy Boissonneau spoke at at committee and he said it's akin to torture. He says, there's nothing about me that needs to be changed, full stop. So everybody was like that full stop. They like the full stop. Everybody was pretty passionate about this. And I kind of thought about this issue like, it's easy to get up in virtue signal, isn't it? And council seems to be doing a lot of that lately. Like, I agree, we should ban this. It's probably a good thing to do. But it also isn't a hard thing to get up and say we should do. Yeah. Oh, well, I mean, we did have speakers at council saying that it would violate their religious freedoms to ban this practice. So there was pushback in the room. A little. Um, I don't know that it's hard to push back against those people, especially with the politics of Edmonton. Yeah. But I will say that I don't think that this virtue signaling is valueless simply because, yeah, in a lot of cases, this is very easy to do and it doesn't materially do anything. Like practically, we can't enforce it was kind of administration's point of view. That's why it's symbolic. Yeah. And this generally needs to fall to the province, a province who has canceled the uh, panel inquiring into doing this. So I think the virtue signaling has the specific tangible benefit of if we signal through each and every one of our cities that this is something that needs to get done right that is sending a message to the people who can do this that it needs to get done and the population supports this it is amplifying the voices of the people in a way that can't be easily ignored because you can have a protest at the ledge and you can wave some signs and then the next day that's forgotten about when there's motions and bylaws on the books and councils 
forcing this issue, I think that's harder to ignore. So that's where I think the value comes in. I think that's a really great point. And it's kind of what Iveson did say in a follow up. He said, we are in a position as a community to send a signal that it's wrong. That is what passing law is sometimes about, clarifying a community's values and confirming a right that ought not to be up for debate. And they really didn't debate this very much. It, the quote unquote debate was grandstanding in sequence. Yes. Um, so, yeah, conversion therapy that bylaw hasn't passed yet because this was committee. It'll go up to council. I have no doubt in my mind that it will pass without any any discussion or debate whatsoever. We'll move on quickly to Airbnb. When Uber came to Edmonton, Uber really gave us the elbow and just said, yeah, your rules don't matter to us. We're going to do stuff. Airbnb is a bit less than that because rules aren't really developed around this sort of industry. It's not like taxis where there was like, you have to have a medallion to be a taxi. Right. It's just this ambiguous nether region. City Council is hoping to change that ambiguity. Maybe? Yeah, the report on this was quite interesting, I thought. It said that online listings for short-term rentals. And I also love that the report made a point of not just saying Airbnb, but also VRBO and a couple of others that probably you've never heard of. Anyway, it said that the number of listings increased from 44 in 2014 to more than 2,400 currently. I don't know about you, but I was surprised by that number. Yeah. It makes me think the 2014 numbers were just underreported. Or it makes me think that just like a bunch of services hadn't launched in 2014. Maybe, yeah. 63% of those were entire units, 36% were just private rooms, and 1% were shared rooms. So if you've used Airbnb, you can see that there's a, a range of options for you and prices. I imagine some of that shared room is just like couch surfing. Yeah, exactly. And so what council, or sorry, what committee decided to do was create a business license bylaw for this or update the business license bylaw for this. So hosts would have to apply for a business license that could mean a property inspection and the fee for this would be $92. So they're going to try to, I guess, generate a little bit of revenue off this short-term rental listing boom. Really though, how much revenue, if there's only 2,400 total when it's free and wild west, how much revenue is this actually going to generate? I wonder what the true motivation is here because people debate whether there's value in short-term rentals. A lot of people yeah. don't like living next to an Airbnb. So I wonder if this is a licensing as we're trying to curb the adoption of Airbnb or if we're saying we're embracing this system and we just want to regulate it. Well, as somebody who lives in a um, condo building that has some Airbnb units and our condo board is discussing updating our bylaws for the first time in more than a decade and a proposal is to ban short-term rentals, which I'm opposed to, I think we should allow it. And I don't think actually that it would hold up in court anyway, uh, if it were challenged. But uh, I see this as a signal that you know, to condo boards and others like, no, the city says this is okay. There's a path for this. You can go get a business license and then it's regulated, as you say. Um, I see it a little bit more as an endorsement of short-term rentals rather than as a tr an attempt to curb the growth in, in short-term rentals. Short-term rentals, they're a problem in other cities. So like in Vancouver and Toronto, places where property values are through the roof. Yeah. There's a scourge of short-term rentals and you have a bunch of vacant properties because they're Airbnb. I don't know that that problem exists as much in Edmonton, especially with you own a downtown condo. You've seen your property assessments. Have they been going up year over year? In general, the assessments have been shrinking. We've yeah, had, it hasn't gone up. Yeah, we've had declining property values, especially in the core where there's demand for these Airbnb or short-term rental type spaces. 
So I think a lot of the global complaints about short-term rentals don't necessarily apply. It's not driving people out of affordable housing, I don't think. Really, we're just combating the nuisance factor. Do people want to live next to an Airbnb? And then I say, eh, I mean, you don't get to choose your neighbors as long as there's just like a reasonable regulation and you're safe enjoying your home. As long as we have sufficient noise bylaws and enforcements and all the things that make sure this is just a domicile that's acting in good faith. I don't know that we have any business banning short-term rentals. Yeah, I've lived downtown for 10 years in a condo building now, and I can tell you that the nuisance is not from the neighbors. We're going to talk about a brief last nuisance. Uh, Bird scooters and lime scooters descended upon Edmonton last weekend, and we've had a full week of these scooters. Last week when I drove over here to, to record the episode, I went down Jasper Avenue, and there was bird scooters in every corner. This week, not a scooter in sight. And then you get south of the river and they're everywhere. Well, that's because they removed downtown from the zone. Bird has been really changing their um, strategy for how they're deploying scooters. Can we call it a strategy? Bird has been changing their implementation without a strategy, which describes the rollout to a T. But I don't really want to talk about the companies. The companies are doing their own thing. I think what I want to talk about is the farcical bad takes we're seeing from our city council. So I want to read a couple quotes here. The first from Iveson, who, let's recall Iveson on an election platform. He's the transit mayor. He's talking about urbanism, about making Edmonton the city for two million people. Yep. And we all know how urban planning works, how we need to solve the last mile problem, how we need to reduce car trips in order to get there, especially as a downtown core. And scooters are one mobility option. Iveson had this to say about scooters, quote, it's important that people make themselves aware of the rules. There have been issues already with many people improperly using them on sidewalks. So that's one of the things we'll be monitoring. But at the end of the day, it's got to self-enforce. Iveson said that if there are too many issues, the city may have to revisit the idea of having e-scooters in the city. Quote, it's just not realistic for the city to be out there ticketing every street corner with people violating the rules, end quote. (laughs) Where do you begin with that? In a city where our bylaws are enforced on a complaint basis, not proactively. That's one take on this. That's a ridiculous statement. But you had another stronger one. Um, Cars? (laughs) So Iveson is saying... Well, if people don't follow the rules, we need to take away this option. Are we banning cars because we know how many photo radar tickets are issued? Right. A third of everyone in the Edmonton metro area gets a photo radar ticket every year. Let's ban cars if this isn't okay. We can't be at every street corner enforcing it's traffic It's not possible. Violations. Not possible. I am aghast that he managed to say that with a straight face and not recognize the cognitive dissonance because he has talked about this in the past about we have a transportation network based on cars that extremely dangerous and full of scoff laws violating the rules. The fact that scooters, because some people are riding the new thing that only goes 20 kmh on the sidewalk means we need to ban this immediately (laughs) is just impossible to fathom for me. But he wasn't the only one with a bad take. Uh, Councillor Scott McKean had a very different bad take he's still hesitant about the scooters saying quote i see bikes as a legitimate form of active transportation i think e-scooters are more in the realm of play and fun that's why i voted against it especially if people are being able to hop on an e-scooter after maybe they've had a few beers downtown or white avenue that's what concerns me 
my hipster cred is dropping considerably on this. I think there will be broken bones ahead. Troy, have you ever jumped on a bike after having a beer? I don't drink, <laughs> but also the Traffic Safety Act does not prohibit cycling while drunk. You know what it does prohibit doing? Driving while drunk. Yeah. Do you know how many drunk drivers <laughs> we catch every year? Do you know what a check stop is? We have this whole infrastructure system catching these people that we know we're doing this dangerous thing. And do you know what happens when a drunk driver hits you? You die. Right. You don't break a wrist because you're on a scooter doing dumb stuff. People who are drunk and want to do dumb stuff will do dumb stuff whether or not you give them a scooter. No way to stop it. I aghast. Get your heads out of your nether regions, Mr. City Councilor. That's Troy's hot takes about scooters. But we don't have time for any other hot takes. We just got to get those hot dollar dollar bills, yo, by doing an ad. Yeah, because it's too difficult to sign up as a juicer for Lime at the moment. <laughs> so I will read you an ad about ATBX. This is a program that supports Alberta entrepreneurs. It's a 10-week accelerator that helps Albertan businesses in the market validation stage. They receive mentoring and financial advising through the program, and ATB is working with Work Nicer, a co-working space in both Calgary and Edmonton, uh, to bring a more immersive experience to their accelerator. So you can uh, learn more about that at atb.com, and if you search for ATBX, you'll find that the application deadline has been extended to August 28th. So if you have a business that you'd like to take to the next level, you can apply to ATBX. So dudes scraping off the Lime logos, ATBX, they can get your business to the next level. And that's all for this week. Um, next week, we should be releasing on time. Fringe will be over. And if I am not dead from lack of sleep, everything should go swimmingly. Knock on wood. Until next week, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking, Speaking Municipally. Municipally.